day after day after day, week after week after week, year after year after year, throughout eternity, Lord, would you receive praise from us, those of us who look to you, Jesus, as our Savior, Deliverer, and Lord. Be magnified in this place. Be magnified through your word. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me to preach your word this morning. I pray that you would anoint us to hear your word and to respond to your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. And we're going to be continuing on in Acts chapter 12, starting with verse 18. And um, as we get ready to hear God's word this morning, I just want to say that um, they teach us when we're going to preach to be gracious and kind to every character that we're preaching about because any of these, by God's grace, it could have been us. And um, so anyway, so it's been a challenge as I've looked at this passage and asked the Lord, what would that mean and how do we, how do we look with your grace and how do we, um, how would you prepare us, Lord? How would you caution us? How would you warn us this morning? And so um, this Acts series, um, we're talking about mission in the kingdom. And the big idea of chapter 12, actually, if you remember that the, now the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles and then chapter 12 is kind of like a meanwhile back in Jerusalem, kind of a look back, lets you go back and see what's happening in Jerusalem at the time. And we remember that King Herod had actually decided he was going to persecute the church and he started with James and killed James and then he put Peter in prison. You remember this? And then last week we heard about the deliverance of Peter as God supernaturally brought Peter out of chains and out of that heavy, heavy guard. And we're going to carry on. But um, this chapter, even though we've got some sections here and today we're going to learn about Herod's death, it's really a continuation of that story that you heard last week. And so we'll pick this up um, here, verse 18. So this was after um, Peter's deliverance. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon and now joined together and sought, they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. This is God's word. 
And certainly the big idea here is that God's word will continue to go forward as he opens doors and as he removes obstacles as his church prays. And so God's word will go forward despite big obstacles and things that seem impossible, like Peter being chained in a prison under 16 guards and released by an angel, and that the obstacles, that the Lord will remove the obstacles. There's a clash of kingdoms. There's God's kingdom wanting to move forward, spreading the gospel, and there's somebody that decides to use their position of authority and leadership to try to block that and persecute the church. There's a clash of kingdoms. There's a clash of leaders, the apostles and King Herod. Leaders influence culture. And I want to spend some time this morning talking a little bit about leaders and about the culture that they create and their actions and what the fruit of that is. And so um, it was so refreshing to me to read a story about a leader who was doing an amazing job. I don't know if you know this, but Alita Terpstra and I are both registered nurses and graduated from the same nursing school. And our alumni newsletter, which I often don't read, truth be told, but, um, well, there's just a lot of things to read these days, right? But I picked this up and I was so blessed by their story. Often it's something like pulmonary hypertension or some new medical technique or something, and um, I just graze on through that. But this one was about a leader, and um, it was Sister Marita, and it's a news article from the Big Rapids Pioneer that they reprinted about her 100th birthday celebration. This was um, a nun and a registered nurse who has worked nationally and internationally, helping set up healthcare systems in Australia, helping set up um, food for immigrants along the East Coast, working with our um, nation and our government to um, create programs for feeding people that needed food, as well as has given much leadership um, in the uh, Sisters of Mercy organization. And um, it starts with a quote from her saying, I must first of all thank God for giving me my parents who raised me and the church and the friends who supported me. And then a fellow nun says of her, she always has had great faith that God will give her the insight to do the right thing. So you hear this coworker saying she's really relying on the Lord for wisdom. She was the first woman to lead a healthcare, this Catholic healthcare organization. And like I said, They worked in Australia setting up health care for people who didn't have health care. She's always very welcoming to people and always assumes the best of others, is what another co-worker said. And then her cousin said this, she's a kind spirit and she's always concerned about how other people are doing more than talking about herself. And for Sister Marita, showing people that they're loved and cared for is the utmost importance. And so then as she, um, as they closed this article, they gave a quote from her and she, she said, she told them that she hopes to spend the rest of her life continuing to inspire others through the love of God and that God leads us in life, she said with a smile, as we grow older, as we think and pray, 
God will send messages to us in different ways. And I thought, what a beautiful leadership recognition. Somebody who's would rather hear about other people than themselves, does more listening than talking, and readily admits that they're relying on God for wisdom. And then all the fruit and blessings that come from that. Now we look at a leader like that, and then we look at King Herod and his leadership. And I want to take a few minutes to talk about what he um, is embodying as a leader. Because leaders, if they're any good at all, they're going to embody, they're going to proclaim, and they're going to advance whatever their values, their mission, their organization, whatever it is that they believe in and they're working towards. If they're a good leader, leaders influence others. And actually, in some ways, we're all leaders because at the most, we should be able to influence ourselves influence our roommates or our families, our co-workers. There's an influence that each of us have. And so in some ways, we can all consider ourselves um, having leadership to give. And so what does King Herod embody? Well, I believe that he embodies, in some ways, the kingdom of evil. And um, he was, it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 12, that he was intent on persecuting the church. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Herod's background. Herod, King Herod, was actually one of four King Herods. His great-grandfather was the um, king that murdered all the babies when Jesus was born because he was feeling threatened about his position of leadership, so just annihilated all the Hebrew baby boys. Then he had an uncle who um, took off John the Baptist's head and served it on a plate. And now we have this king who um, has killed James and is ready to kill Peter, putting him in um, prison because he wanted to gain favor with the Jews. So he comes from a family of violence. And when you and I look at our family histories, there are things that come down to us that are in our environment and also can come through spiritually. And um, some of those that wrote on this king said they felt like demonically that there was a generational um, violent murder spirit that was involved. He also grew up in Rome and his best friend was the son of the Caesar. And so he grew up in a culture of... Um, looking at Caesar as a man-god. And his goal in life was to become Caesar. And so from reading extra-biblical history, we find out that he was clamoring for position. He actually borrowed large sums of money to put on big parties to honor people so that then in that flattery that they would appoint him to various positions. And so he was working his network, going into debt, trying to gain position. He was clamoring for a position. He also converted to Judaism. And I think Pastor Delisa mentioned this last week. So he was a Gentile, but he went the full way, including circumcision, 
to become Jewish. And proselytes were considered Jews. However, it's, you wonder, one wonders, did he do this because he really was seeking God? Or did he do this for political advantage? And I think that we can look at what happened here, and um, it probably is pretty evident, his intention. He was people-pleasing for personal gain. He had no qualms about putting somebody to death just because he would gain favor with a crowd. And he wanted to gain favor so that he had more prestige and more influence. So he was embodying evil. He had these cultural and family and spiritual things coming down through his chain. And then we see pride. And I want to say this, as I've reflected on this passage, he chose to put Peter in jail and say that his trial was going to be right after Passover. And I believe in even that was distracting from the purpose of remembering Passover for his own gain. That would be like if Pastor Dave and I decided that we were going to become city um, commissioners in addition to being pastors. We were going to do this because we were going to try to do for the betterment of um, the city. But really, if it was for our own gain, we might decide that we were going to have a campaign speech the day after Easter, and we'd use the Easter service to invite everybody to our campaign, campaign speech the next day, distracting from Easter. Do you get it? Passover is this most wonderful memory of God's deliverance out of Egypt. And he's using this trial of Peter and saying, oh, while you're all here, while you're all gathered, just stick around one extra day. Tomorrow is Peter's trial. There's nothing honorable about it. It's pride. I believe that he saves face because he moves on after Peter's deliverance. If he was really concerned about his Jewish brothers who were feeling threatened by the gospel going to the Gentiles, he would have stayed in Jerusalem to try to get to truth. But actually what he did was when he when all of a sudden Peter disappears and he can't have this trial, he just gets interested in what's going on over in this other city and leaves town and diverts the attention so that now he's going over here where there's this other argument going on and he can um, save face. We see this, don't we? We see this in politics today. If something doesn't go the way that they want it, all right, now all of a sudden we're getting the news on this topic because it just switched this is not new pride does this trying to save face now i want to tell you that here it tells us that here are people that are dependent on his country for food supply and what does he do he doesn't have an immediate response he says i'll hold a meeting when i'm ready i'll give a speech He's concerned about what he's going to wear to that speech. And he's 
not consulting. There's something very obvious here. It doesn't say he consulted God about what to say or what to do, but he was going to give a declaration. It's like the people that are in famine have to wait for his timing. And he's very opportunistic because actually these countries that are coming to him are very wealthy coastal countries, but they're experiencing famine. And I just wonder, what was that that he even said in his speech? My guess is it was something that was going to benefit. There was going to be some benefit if there was going to be any way that his country was going to help with this. This is what he's embodying. Selfishness, pride, evil, coming against the kingdom of God's and God's purposes. And he's proclaiming his own judgments. If he had consulted the Lord, he would have known and God would have told him That back in chapter 11, it's recorded that the Lord had revealed to prophets that there was going to be this great famine. And the church right away pitched in and was ready to help. It doesn't say they had to wait and put on their best robes and their fancy garb to make a showing about their help. They were ready to help. And if he would have consulted the Lord, he would have known. God would have told him. I've already told the prophets about this. This is a legitimate need. If he was aligning himself with the kingdom of God, he would have said, I'm going to join the churches and we're going to offer this help. He also refuses to give glory to God. And I believe that we see this at least in two places in this story. In one place is where Peter's escape. And it says there was a thorough search made And then he cross-examined the guards. Now, how do you get 16 people that are at all different places and spaces and different times even to come up with the same story if they're trying to pull something on you? You know, he heard, I'm sure, the exact same story by 16 people and not once. He cross-examined them so that twice that he heard they don't know how he got out. And is he willing to say that possibly something supernatural, something, some mystery, even to just acknowledge there was mystery here? No. What does he do? He executes the law that he has the privilege to do and just has all the guards executed. Kills them. Kills them. The ones that work under him, he throws them under the bus in a most drastic and physical way. He refused to give God glory to say there was any mystery or supernatural deliverance of Peter, even though, remember, Passover is the deliverance, and this was God's kingdom coming now to deliver Peter. He also refuses to give God glory when they, when these people say, oh, this speech, this is, these are the words of a God. And he doesn't correct them right away saying, no, I'm not God. The Lord, he is God. He is one. That's what all Jewish people know is the Shema. And they point to God. But remember, in his heart, he's a Roman and he wants to be a Caesar. This isn't a new sin. Pride has been in the world since the beginning of sin and since the fall of man. And pride goes before the fall. 
So he's embodying and he's proclaiming, but he's really proclaiming his own words and taking the glory. And he's trying to advance his own kingdom, I believe, in conjunction with the kingdom of darkness. God stops this obstacle to the gospel. And he stops it in a drastic and a very serious way. He he, um, speaks a word of judgment and sends an angel to take him out. This actually is a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 51.8 says that worms will eat foes, God's foes, like wool. And I thought, maybe this is just talking about the humiliation of his death that he was left out for worms to eat or something like this. But actually, no, these worms were like parasites or something that afflicted him immediately. And he had a slow, painful death that was very disgusting of being eaten alive by worms. But it's fulfillment of scripture that says that God's foes that worms will eat them like wool. Proverbs 1 talks about how that those that seek to ambush the innocent, they themselves will be ambushed. We see this fulfilled. This was another of God's promises, and we see this fulfilled. And Proverbs 16.8 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And friends, it's with great sadness to say that this man, whether he knew it or not, was deceived. He was proud. He was wanting to live for himself and his own glory. And it was his downfall. Now, I want to think about the impact that this has when you're serving under a leader who's proud and um, focused on their own kingdom. And I think about what those soldiers and what his personal servants would have felt like serving somebody who was narcissistic and obsessed with themselves and their own image and their own power. We see that there was fear, there was intimidation, like the guards, they're trying to tell the truth, and yet what's that going to get them? There's control and manipulation. We see that, okay, these foreign countries are coming in and trying to get a private consultation with one of his personal servants. And so we're trying to control and manipulate things to try to get a favorable outcome. And so how can they trust him? How can he trust his servants when there's this kind of dysfunction going on within the organization? There's flattery. When he is in his royal robes and they say the sun shone and it looked like it was just brilliant because he was wearing this sparkly metallic robe and he's giving this speech and they're saying, you've got the voice of a God. That's flattery. But I want you to think about what it does to everybody who elevates somebody and says, you're a God. What is it saying about yourself? It devalues everybody else who's trying to put this other person on a pedestal. They're putting them up on a pedestal while you're devaluing yourself. And actually, aren't we all, Scripture tells us, made in the image of God? They view the leader as a God, 
And when you view another person in that kind of capacity, you're at great risk of being taken advantage of. And I have cried more than one tear over the last few weeks as I've read about leaders and more leaders being either accused of things or it openly being stated, the fall of leadership. People that have been put up and respected and maybe even viewed in a way that was higher than should have been. And they haven't walked in holiness. They haven't given God credit. They haven't used their authority to help and be a blessing. And I say it's got to stop. And I say that we have to not put people on pedestals. And we have to hear a caution and a word of caution about how we interact with each other. I'm thinking about people who go on legitimate, like, job interviews and they're asked to do compromising things. This is not okay. This is not aligning with the kingdom of God. And maybe it aligns with our culture, just like Herod was aligning with his Roman culture, but that is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is one that honors people. When we think about what was the first thing the angel did when he woke Peter up and he took the shackles off and he said, get your clothes on. He wasn't going to humiliate Peter. He wasn't going to have Peter walk around naked to be possibly more abused and taken advantage of. He was honoring him. God honors people. He doesn't dishonor people. There's a word of caution about revival, and I read this in the past week, and I felt like, why is it that I'm getting this article about Charisma Magazine, an editorial, about a caution about revival? They were actually calling out their charismatic and Pentecostal friends who, with great spiritual gifting, have gotten and let pride get in the way. And all of a sudden, they're going by, like, oh, I have the gift of prophecy, and so this is the great prophetess. This is the great prophet. This is the bishop. This is the archbishop. This is the most honorable whatever. And giving all these kinds of names and titles to one another. And they're saying, friends, this is pride. We cannot let pride creep into the church. And as we have prayed, even Victor, we've prayed for the Lord to help you write a book. The Lord's been gracious. He's done miracle upon miracle. You cannot get proud. This church cannot get proud. The Lord wants us to give all the glory to the Lord, all the glory to God. But friends, it's a temptation. It's a temptation. When you've had any any kind of success, any kind of blessing, it's a temptation to want to take credit yourself. Just look at anything that you've written. Maybe look back at your emails or your Facebook posts and see how many times do you reference the Lord and how many times do you have the word I or my in there. It's a good check. It's a good check. The impact on the organization that Herod was leading was a mess. They were infighting. They wouldn't trust each other. And um, and it just 
you can just imagine what it would be like to try to serve Herod. Now let's think about what it's like to serve Jesus. Let's think about Jesus and what kind of leader was Jesus. Jesus was a leader who was completely aligned with the kingdom of God. He embodied the kingdom of God, which meant that he had been transferred and always was in the kingdom of light. He had a relationship. He knew the father and he knew about him. And he had a character that was absolutely unquestionable. He was kind. He was gentle. He was patient. He was not proud and he was not boastful. If we look at that whole 1 Corinthians 13, love is this and love is that. Jesus was the perfect one who loves and is love. As opposed to what Herod was like, Jesus. And he he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, and he made himself nothing. He humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. Do you see the difference when I'm describing Jesus, our leader, as compared to a worldly leader or a proud leader or a leader that would come from the kingdom of darkness? Friends, we need to discern this and we need to be careful and we need to make sure that our leadership is emulating Jesus, our leader. When I think about what Jesus did, that he humbled himself, that he took on this nature, that he entered into all of our pain and our hurt. He wasn't trying to avoid it and jump city from city wherever it was opportunistic. He was actually only doing what he saw the father doing. So he wasn't even setting his own agenda. He was deferring to what was the father wanting. Friends, are we walking in that kind of humility, that kind of dependence? Father, whatever you want. Father, whatever's going to give you the most glory. I see this in Peter because the angel took him so far and then stopped and he kind of like woke up. Think about what Peter could have done right at that moment. If he was concerned about his own agenda and his own safety, he would have gotten out of town. But why did Peter come back to Jerusalem? It was to encourage the church. It was to strengthen the church. And so what was the first thing on his mind? I think what was on the father's mind, strengthen the church for what's ahead. Because you see, if Peter would have just ditched town and not stopped by to tell him the testimony of his deliverance, they could have just assumed that Herod just quietly got rid of him for some reason. But he goes and he gives testimony. And he doesn't go, hey, guess what? I escaped. He says, the Lord gave me deliverance. This angel, you know, like he gives all the glory to God. He encourages them. And then he moves on, not because probably it felt real secure to go out walking by yourself, but I feel like he was thinking about the well-being of the church right then and that they didn't need him to be right there because he would be like a magnet because I'm sure Herod's people would be looking for him. So he was selfless and he was concerned about building up, strengthening, and encouraging the church. When a godly leader influences others, 
And we see this. Peter had a good influence on the church because they were in a dire strait that night when they were praying for his, whatever they were praying, however they were praying, for his deliverance, for his peace of mind and so forth. They were unified. They weren't out trying to have some unholy alliance with Herod or any of his workers. They were there all together and they were trusting God and they were praying. And they were praying in a way, and we've said this a couple times, gosh, I wonder how they were praying. It doesn't necessarily tell us how they're praying. But this is the way I think they're praying as I've walked and walked and walked this week praying and thinking about this passage. I think it's the way that Jesus taught him to pray because it's a way that he taught us to guard against pride. He taught them the Lord's Prayer and he said, In that prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the glory. For yours is the glory. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power forever, right? Yours and yours alone. How do we guard against pride? I think first we... We become aware of it and we name it as a strong temptation. I'm reading this crazy book right now, Playing for Pizza, and it's about um, an NFL football player that got cut in America and is playing football in Italy. And anyway, and in this book, it describes how that he just got used to the cars and the celebrity and the, you know, the money and the parties and whatever. And then he goes to Italy and he um, gets picked up in a sedan instead of a limousine. And he has this little third floor flat that's just like a studio that has no elevator. And then they gave him a little Fiat that was stick shift to drive. And his big old knees hit the dashboard. And I thought, yeah, there's things like that that remind us that we all really like. We like celebrity. We like prestige. There's, you know, anything, right? We can take pride about anything. Our earrings or our shoes, like, you know, what, right? What, what electronic device do we have or whatever? Oh, pride is subtle and it's a trap. And the Lord wants to protect us from that. And he wants us to regularly and faithfully Look to Jesus and remember he was one that modeled this incredible humility in love. Why? To try to save people. Not to condemn, but to try to save. And so as we walk in this humility, as we seek to follow his pattern, the Lord wants to use us to bring the gospel to wherever he takes us and wherever that course might be, including prisons, including speaking to kings, including out on the streets, including our coworkers and our families. We're praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Right? Lord, yours and yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And Lord, would you protect us? 
And would you help us to walk in humility, to not fall into a trap? Or would you protect your reputation so that you would receive the most glory from our lives individually, from our lives as a church? Lord, your church throughout the world, glorify yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.